Okay, well, let's get to a time of studying God's Word, shall we? Let's turn to uh, Hebrews, if you would. Getting back to our study of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. It has been a while. In fact, I looked at it. I think the last time we were in Hebrews was at the end of November, November 20th. Um, so we've had a, had a little bit a little time off of, of Hebrews. And um, where we've been in Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 basically is all about faith. That's what it's about. So this, the, the Hall of Faith chapter, or the Heroes of the Faith chapter, um, we were given a wonderful um, definition of the nature of faith right at the beginning of that chapter. And then the author is launched into um, the Old Testament to give us examples of that kind of faith, the biblical faith, authentic uh, faith. And that's the only kind of faith there is, the faith that pleases God, the only faith by which we, we may approach him. And just to remind you, the Jews had a misguided view of uh, faith, and that's because Judaism at this point had deteriorated into a system of self-righteous works, and so uh, they didn't really understand where faith fit in on that. They more aligned it with the rituals and the sacrifices and the feasts and the festivals and all those things. That that, those things made one right um, before God, um, but we're told something different. And, and particularly in Hebrews, they, in fact, the author culminated his entire argument in chapter 10, verse 38, the just shall live by faith. Those who are justified are justified by faith, and we, we live by uh, faith. And as we look at uh, this, you know, this is going to be a great, a, a great chapter to be in. And if you've missed the last few, I encourage you to go back into it because it's really talking about this new covenant. This new covenant is all about faith. We enter it by faith because without faith, it's impossible, we're told, to please God. Impossible. Because first, you must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So the author is re-educating the Hebrews on the subject of faith. That's what he's uh, doing, and he's doing it by going to the Old Testament, giving them examples of men and women in their own Old Testament who exhibited this kind of uh, faith. And he's showing them this because he wants to demonstrate this is not something new. It's a new covenant, but God has not, not, not designed something new. It's, it's the same way. It's always been intended that we approach God uh, by Faith, And if you recall, the first person he went to, the first example we looked at was Abel, uh, Adam and Eve's uh, son. He demonstrated authentic faith, and, and, and he did that really um, because of his uh, obedient offering to God. He demonstrated that he had authentic faith, and they were told through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. So he obtained witness that he was righteous not because of works, but because of his faith. And then we looked at Enoch. Enoch walked with God and he was no more. He demonstrated authentic faith as well because of his relationship with God. He pleased God. And then we looked at the well-known Noah. Noah demonstrated, obviously, authentic faith because of his obedience to God's instructions to go and build an ark. Um, and he did that uh, for many, many years on, on faith, trusting in the promises of God. So today we come to the ultimate Old Testament example of faith. And that is Abraham, Abraham's faith. And in many ways, Abraham is the ultimate example of biblical faith because he's kind of a composite of the total uh, package where we've seen maybe parts of faith in Abel and Enoch and Noah. Abraham, his whole life exhibits everything we need to know about faith. It's not because he was the father of the Jewish race. That's what the Jews thought. Um, that was really the whole misunderstanding. You know, they prided themselves on being, remember, uh, Children of Abraham. They always threw that in Jesus' face, didn't they? We, our, Abraham is our father. You might remember when John the Baptist came on the scene and he began baptizing people in preparation for the ministry of, of Jesus, he really challenged those religious leaders. And he said this in Luke uh, chapter 3, verse 8. He says, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Uh, why did John say that? Well, because the Jews had been taught by the rabbis that, that Abraham pleased God because of his works. God had searched the world over and found a righteous man. He found Abraham, so he chose Abraham to be the father of his chosen people. And therefore, because they were descendants of Abraham, you know, his children, then God saw righteousness in them as well. It was uh, righteousness by association. You can say it that way. Um, but that was just not true. That's not how that came about. He, God could make stones become spiritual children of Abraham. He didn't need the Jewish people for that. So being descendants of Abraham doesn't mean anything because we're told without faith, it's impossible to please God. 
So God's choosing of Abraham was not based upon his righteousness. It was based upon his faith. And that's the whole subject uh, here. Faith is trusting in things not yet seen. And that's the Christian life, isn't it? We trust in things not yet seen. We haven't seen God. We haven't seen Jesus Christ. We haven't seen the Holy Spirit. We haven't met any of these heroes of the faith. We haven't met anybody who, who wrote a book of the Bible. We haven't seen heaven. Some people will tell you the contrary, but we haven't. Everything is based upon that which we do not see, yet at the same time, we live with the assurance that these things are real and the certainty that they are real. And you might remember, going back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, we're told faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And the way I told you to look at that is faith is being sure, being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Think of those two words, sure and certain. Well, how did Abraham exhibit that kind of faith? Well, that's what we're going to find out today. In our passage, we're going to look at verses 8 through uh, 16 of chapter 11. So let me read that, and then we'll pray for God's blessing on our time. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them far off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind the country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be with us to guide us into truth, to illuminate it to our hearts, Lord, that we might apply the, the wonderful truths about faith that we will see today. So be with us, Lord. May our time in your word be glorifying to you and edifying to your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, I'm excited about this passage. I've been waiting to get to Abraham. I love, I love uh, Abraham and the examples of, uh, of Abraham. <clears throat> um, so let's just begin by looking at verse 8. I just want to look at this, this beginning bit to get this going. It said this, By faith Abraham obeyed, when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. Now, this verse really gives us the very first act of faith um, in Abraham's life. And when uh, and where did that all happen? And as you think about Abraham's life, some of you might go back and think, okay, where, where, we, where do we see that in, in Abraham's life? You might think of Genesis 15. And you don't have to turn there yet, but I'll show this one on the screen. Genesis 15, verses 5 to 6, because it's so well known. It says, then he brought him outside. This is God bringing Abraham outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So God says, look at the stars. Can you count them? You can't. That's how many descendants you'll have. And because Abraham believed God's word, he just believed him. It was accounted to him for righteousness. Now that would be a legitimate place to go because even Paul goes there. When you, when you read uh, Galatians, he was writing to Galatians about justification uh, by faith. He quotes this verse to show that Abraham was declared righteous even before he did any works, even before he was commanded to be circumcised, which was the, the, the symbol of the Jewish uh, faith at that time. It was the symbol of the covenant. But this passage here that we're reading in Hebrews gives us a hint that Genesis 15 probably is not the first example of um, Abraham's faith. There is an earlier example, and I want to take you there. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 11, if you would. Now, we'll be in Hebrews and Genesis back and forth a bit, so if you can keep a marker in Hebrews, I encourage you to do that. And then let's go to Genesis chapter 11. Very first book of the Bible should be easy to find there. And as you're turning there, I want to remind you that the author has been going through the Bible chronologically for his examples, hasn't he? I mean, he really began with creation, 
In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, he said, you know, by faith, we understand that everything's been made. Um, but also then when he went to the first example of people, he went to Abel. And Abel comes to us in Genesis chapter 4. So he went from chapter 1 to 2 to chapter uh, 4. Um, and then he went to Enoch, which is Genesis chapter 5. And then he went to Noah, which is Genesis chapter 6. So he's just going right in order. But the account of Noah, it's a lengthy account. It takes us from Genesis chapters 6 through 10, which brings us to Genesis 11. Now, at the end of chapter 11, we find a genealogy, and it is the genealogy of Shem. Shem is one of Noah's three sons. Remember, he had Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They entered the ark with Noah along with their wives. Well, the genealogy of Shem is listed there for a reason, because that genealogy ends with uh, the mention of one final descendant, and his name is Terah. And when you look at that, we're then given a genealogy of this man named Terah. That's what I want to take you to. It's in chapter 11, verse 27. Just look at verse 27. It says this. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram. That's our Abraham. Nahor and Haran. Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. And then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife. And they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So, so here we have um, this genealogy that takes us to this guy named Terah, because Terah is the father of, of Abram. And this is where you first learn of Abraham. He's called Abram here, but his name will be changed uh, later on. And a move has taken place, hasn't it? They have moved from this place called Ur to Haran, this different place. And in Haran, Abram's father dies. And we come to then to the first recorded words from God to Abram. At this time, his name is Abram. And it's in Genesis chapter uh, 12. Look at it, just the first three verses. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the great promise to Abram, the great um, promise that he makes about a land and a people and a nation, and it's an incredible, incredible promise. So we come to this. Now, recall the words that we read in Hebrews. You don't have to turn uh, there yet. I'll just I'll put it back up on the screen for you. Hebrews 11, 8, the verse we read, says this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. So here's my question. What calling is Hebrews referring to? When was he called to go out? Is it the call that we just read in Genesis chapter 12? Or is it uh, something earlier? Well, I would say this, that Abraham received an earlier call, and that's why he moved to Haran in the first place. And the way we learn this is a very interesting place. We learn this in the New Testament from a man named Stephen. All right, Stephen was uh, one of the men chosen uh, from the disciples sort of to serve the people um, uh, among the apostles, right? And he was a very faithful man and a powerful man in speech. But in Acts chapter 7, verses 2 to 4, he's talking to the Jews, and this is what he says. And he said, brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. And then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. So we don't know exactly when or how God first made himself known to Abram, but what we do know is that, that it was when he was in Mesopotamia. So perhaps this is just a, a repeated uh, phrasing of what was first mentioned to, to, um, to Abraham when he was there. But why is this important? Why am I bringing that up? This is why. Because God called Abram while he was still a pagan. We have looked at men like Abel. We have looked at Enoch. We, men would walk with God. Abel was... Adam and Eve's son, right? Men who were really already in the faith, but, but not Abraham. He was a pagan. He lived in Ur. That was in Chaldea in the region of Mesopotamia between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. That would be southern uh, Iraq, 
uh, today. And uh, archaeological discoveries in that area have revealed that there was a highly sophisticated civilization that lived there. Um, They had elaborate writings, uh, sophisticated mathematics, many religious writings. But primarily what they noticed was that there was a three-story ziggurat that would have been in the middle of that. And it was a temple, a shrine to the moon god, Namu. And they discovered evidence of human sacrifice. So human sacrifice was going on in, in, in honor of this god, Namu. And so it was a deeply pagan culture. Well, Abram was part of that. He lived there. And you might be thinking, well, how do you know he was actually part of that? Well, we also learned that from the Bible. In Joshua 24, verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. So when, when they spoke of their fathers, they, they, they spoke of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He just says, your fathers, but also his father, Terah, they dwelt over there, and they used to serve other gods, and he was right. That is where he was from. And my point is that God called Abram out of that lifestyle, out of a pagan lifestyle, and his response was to obey. Amazing. He left his old life not knowing where he was going, and he followed God. And this is really the first point. We might say that this is the path of faith, and that is the truth. This example is quite different from Abel. This is quite different from Enoch, who walked with God, and Noah, who was righteous before God. Abraham was a pagan. He had no knowledge of God until the God of glory appeared. That's how Stephen put it. The God of glory appeared to him. And really, all of us must begin the same way. That's how we begin. No one is born knowing God. No one is born walking with God. Well, I was born in the Christian home. I don't care. You were born a pagan. You were born separated from God. We're all born that way. We're born in sin. And all of us must leave our old lives behind and choose to walk the path of faith with God. That's how it begins for us. And that's how it began with Abram. That's why I love this example, because it goes to the very, very beginning. That's the new life that we live in Christ, isn't it? It speaks of old things that have passed and new things coming. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. But it, to- it tells us that old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So not some things have passed away and some things have become new. Uh-uh. Everything is new because we've left the past life. We've embarked upon a new path. It's the path of faith. And isn't that the most difficult part? That's got to be the most difficult part, just leaving our old lives. Because guess what? Our lives just want us to remain, don't they? I mean, do they just want to, they want to stay there? you got that past that's always kind of bugging you. That's what we talked about last, last week, leaving the things that are, forgetting those things behind, focusing on what's ahead. It's worldliness keeps many from really ever entertaining the idea of falling after Jesus in the first place because he calls us to leave it behind. He called Abraham to leave it behind. I want you to leave Get out of your country. Leave everything you know, everyone you know, and I want you to follow me. And Abram did it not knowing where he was going. Just, just come. And he did. And that's our call. We're called to just, to just go. And what holds us back a lot of times is that love of the world, the worldliness. And we're told to not love the world. First John 2.15, right? Do not love the world or the things in the world. Why are we told to do that? Because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because it shows that we love the world more than we love the Father, right? That's the idea here. So um, we, we, are, we begin the same way. We really don't know where we're going. We know, we know God's called us to go to a new life, but for a lot of us, what does that look like? What's that going to be like? I have no idea. Maybe there's fear. There, there's doubt. You know, that, that is there. But we're called to pursue him. That's why it's called faith. It's an assurance. It's a certainty regarding the promises of God. Now, that's the path of faith. To be on this path of faith, this takes us to another difficult part, requires patience of faith, doesn't it? Patience of faith. And that's what we see in our Hebrews passage. I'm going to ask you to go back to Hebrews, but do keep your finger in Genesis. We'll come back to it. But Hebrews, look at verse 9. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Now, here's the incredible thing about the promise that God gave to Abraham. It was never realized in his lifetime. He, he, he never inherited that land, guys. He went there. He dwelt in it like in, in tents as a pilgrim, as a sojourner, but he never received that inheritance ever. He never owned any part of it. 
Isn't that incredible to think about that? Stephen also recounted this part of Abraham's story. Look at Acts 7, 5. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. He gave him this land. I'm going to take you to a land. You're not know where you're going. I'm going to give it to you. And when he lived there, he didn't give it to him. He never got it. But Abraham obediently went to that land uh, based on the promise of God. That's why he went. God promised it to him, even though it was never realized in his lifetime. You ever thought about that? All his life, he lived there. And the only thing he ever owned was a cave in Machpelah that he bought to bury his wife, Sarah, in. That's the only thing he owned. Year after year, he dwelt in the land, as we're told, as in a foreign country, a foreigner in his own land that God had given him. I think the parallels between Abraham's experience and that of the Christian are quite clear, aren't they? I mean, all of us are called to obediently step out in faith, follow Jesus because he's leading us to a promise, a land. But in the meantime, we're, we're pilgrims. We're, we're sojourners on earth. We're just sort of passing through on this path of of faith. And as pilgrims, we're commanded to avoid the things that would draw us back to the world. And, and, and those things I've mentioned before, but Peter talks about it as well. In 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. They war against the soul because what they do is they attach us to the world. They attach us to the past, and we're, we're supposed to be going forward. We're supposed to look at this life as a temporary one. We're pilgrims. We're just passing through. So, so we, we live in this world, but we're to live in this world as if we're just passing through. How do we do that? that? I mean, that is hard. How do we abstain from these things when we, when we live amongst it? How do we keep from loving the things of the world? This is the amazing part. What kept Abraham going all those years? Look at what, look at what it tells us in verse 10. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's not something you learn from the Genesis account. That's not something you learn just reading about Abraham's life. That's insight that comes to us from the Holy Spirit here in Hebrews. We learn something very interesting about Abraham's faith and how he patiently endured all those years without ever inheriting the land. His hope was actually in a greater fulfillment of that promise. He's going to give this land, yeah, but it was in something greater. It was a city, a city which had foundations. Now, Remember that wise man who built his house upon the rock and then the one foolish man who built his house on sand? Right, we're told the wise man laid the foundation on the rock. A house or a city with a foundation is a stable and a permanent thing. So he's looking at something that would be more permanent than this earth. You could say, well, hold on a second. He was promised land, a lush land. Yeah, but is that permanent? Is anything you're promised here on this earth permanent? It is not. No relationship, no job, no inheritance, no land, nothing is permanent. Yet, we often fixate ourselves on those temporary things, don't we? And Abraham did not. He looked past that. He was waiting for something greater, something more eternal. He was waiting for the eternal city. I mean, even our bodies are talked about that way as being a temporary thing, aren't they? I mean, I've had to do, unfortunately, many, many funerals. And 2 Corinthians is, is the go-to place for that because it speaks about this body being a tent, a, a temporary dwelling place, because that is a comforting reminder for people who are mourning the loss because maybe we, we start to go, ah, this is a permanent relationship. We know it's not. Our lives are very, very mortal, very, very temporary. 2 Corinthians 5.1 is one of those verses I often read at funerals. We know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed— we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. You know what? There's, no, there's nothing I could say to someone to ease the pain of a loss greater than what God's word says right here. We know that if this temporary thing passes, there's actually a permanent thing that God made, a permanent building, something made without hands, and it's eternal in the heavens. That is great hope. That is a great reminder. And Abraham was reminded of the same thing. He was looking for the city whose builder and maker is God. That's incredible. This is a city designed and built by God. That's what he was looking forward to, an eternal heavenly city. Is there an eternal heavenly city that we're looking forward to? 
You bet there is. You can read about it in Revelation, can't you? Absolutely we are. And that's why we're told to set our minds on things above, because our minds are, must be on our heavenly home, and if they are, we'll be a little bit more patient with what happens uh, here on earth. Because let's just be honest, doesn't life on this earth try your patience just a bit? Day to day, right? Anyone had the beginning of the year like I've had this year? Like there's just a lot, like what else could go wrong? I don't know. You just have all these things that try your patience. And it's never the, the real major events, really. It's actually the minor everyday, day in and day out mundane things that, that try your patience. Abraham lived in a tent every single day for his entire life, never receiving the promise of God. Never. How could he be so patient? He looked past the things of the world. He looked to the things of, of heaven. Don't become absorbed with the things of this world. We, we tend to, but we've got to fight against that. In fact, Paul gives us a great illustration uh, to a young pastor, Timothy. He uses the illustration of, of warfare, uh, of being a soldier. Maybe that helps you. In 2 Timothy 2, 3 to 4, he says this, You, therefore, must endure hardships as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who listed him as a soldier. He, he's, he's taking our thoughts beyond, isn't he? He's like, you know, there's something greater at stake. We get in, entangled in the affairs of life, but did you know that there's a spiritual battle going on? There's battle over souls. There's spiritual things, eternal things at stake, not these mundane things. He's trying to raise our sights a bit to beyond the temporary. That's why he writes that. We're on a heavenly mission is what he's saying. And we've got to try hard to avoid getting entangled with the things of the world, with the affairs of life. We're here to please him who enlisted us. So keep waiting for that heavenly city, folks. It's coming. The heavenly city, I love it. It's called many things in scripture when you read it. But my favorite place I came across it this week is Ezekiel. Ezekiel 20, uh, 48 calls it Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is here. That's where he is. That's where he is. He's there. The Lord is there. That's the heavenly city where God is, where Christ dwells. Looking forward to that. So we start on this, this path of faith, and it, it, takes, it takes great patience, folks, because we're waiting for something beyond this world. We're waiting for something uh, eternal. But in the meantime, can I just encourage you with the power of faith? Because he was encouraged, Abraham was encouraged, that there's great power that can be seen when we have this kind of faith. And it's in verse 11. Look at this. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Now, strangely enough, this verse is disputed. Nearly all New Testament scholars believe Abraham is the subject and not Sarah, so even though it says Sarah herself here. And the reason is because of the phrase uh, strength to conceive, because in the Greek it's literally power to cast down or lay down seed which hopefully you'll agree is power that solely uh, is the man's power. Um, and so the phrase is meant to then include Abraham as the subject, but he, in association with Sarah, received power to lay down seed, thus he was able to conceive, if that kind of makes sense. But here's the whole point. However you take that, it was biologically impossible for Abraham and Sarah to have children. This, this is the point he's making. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, we read in, in Genesis 11 that Sarah was barren that she had no child. But we're also told that they were both, they were both old. Okay, they're just really old people. Abraham was 100, Sarah was 90. And in Genesis 17, um, we'll look at this later as well, but I just want to show you this piece. In verses 16 to 17, uh, God comes to Abraham. He says this, I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and <laughs> laughed. I don't know how you do that before God, but okay, he did it and he lived. And he said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? See, he couldn't believe it because of their age. Our Hebrews passage just simply says she was past the age. So believe me when I say she was past the age, okay? Um, regardless of those biological facts, God promised them a son. This is what's amazing about it. So I do want to take you back to Genesis. I want to take you to that Genesis 15, and I just want to walk you through uh, this real quick, because there's a lot of Genesis that covers Abraham's life. I just want to take you through some pieces of it here so you can see this, 
because God had to keep coming back and reinforcing the promise because it just seems so far-fetched. I mean, she's barren and we're old. How is this going to happen? But in Genesis 15, we looked at part of this, but I'll read the whole thing in, in context. Beginning in verse 1, it says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my own house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So that's the part that we looked out earlier. But now you see it in context. Abram's complaining, saying, I, I have no child. I'm going to give you a child. Now come outside. I'm going to show you how many children you're going to, going to have. Now, this is shocking news. And obviously he shared it with Sarah. Well, apparently we're going to have a child. She so couldn't believe it that it went against the facts that she contrived a different way to have a child. Turn to Genesis 16. She took matters into her own hands. And don't we do this sometimes? But if you do that, you lose the opportunity to see God's power at work. Faith is trusting him to exhibit his power, not her own. She exhibited her own power and ingenuity. In, in chapter 16, verse 1, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. And then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. And so he went into Hagar, and she conceived. So this is her, her mentality. Well, obviously this hasn't happened, so maybe I'm supposed to help God out a little bit, and you can have a child uh, of promise, but it'll be through my maid servant. Well, that was not the child of promise. That was not what God uh, intended. Ishmael was born, but it was not the child of a promise. And so God has to come to Abram again. He comes to him in chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, or uh, exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, which is father of a multitude. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. So he reconfirms it to him. No, no, I promised a, a, a person to come from your body. I said, well, it did come from his body, no, but also Sarah's. Skip ahead to verses 15 to 17. Uh, we looked at this earlier. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not Call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. So he renames them both. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. And then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. And that's when Abraham falls on his face and he, he laughs. So God promises again to both of them that he is going to bring the child of promise. They must trust in him. And if they would do that, they would just trust in him. They're going to see something pretty amazing. Well, it's still unbelievable to them. God has to come one more time in chapter 18. And at this point, Sarai is like tuning into the conversation. Look at verse 10 of chapter 18. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So there it is again. Therefore, Sarah laughed uh, when, within herself, saying, after I've grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. So this is what's amazing. Abraham laughs at it. Sarah laughs at it. It's pretty unbelievable. And from a human standpoint, Let's, re, let's be honest, it looked hopeless, didn't it? So both Abraham and Sarah, they laughed at that. Um, 
why was the gift of having children granted to them if they just laughed at it? Well, you know what? We're told this, that they actually had faith. Maybe we didn't see that in an example, but that is the reason we're given in Hebrews. In the Hebrews passage, it says the reason Sarah was able to conceive was because she judged him faithful who had promised. That's what it says. At some point, Sarah believed in the faithfulness of God. And, you know, sometimes we might chuckle or laugh at what God has shown us. Like, oh, I don't know how God's going to do that. That's the same kind of reaction she had. But we can quickly dismiss that and say, but I'm going to trust the Lord. That's what Sarah did. And she trusted in him and believed in, and waited. And Abraham did as well. In fact, Paul uses Abraham's belief and, and his faith, his strong example of faith as an example uh, to the Jews in, in his, what he writes in Romans 4. Look at this. In Romans 4, he says, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. It actually strengthened his faith to say, I'm going to believe in this. Now, here's what's amazing about this. In the end, there were two impossibilities, weren't there? The one was the humanly impossible situation. There's just no way for me to become a father. You can't bear a child. We're just too old. You're barren. That's a human impossibility. But there was another impossibility happening, and it was a divine impossibility, the impossibility for God to break his word. Right? Because what we were told in Hebrews 6.18, it's impossible for God to lie. We're told that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. What were those two immutable or unchangeable things? It was his promise, his word, and his oath, which is his pledge, right? It's his word. What had God promised? He had promised that Abraham would have a son and it would come from his own body. He had promised that also it would come through Sarah, both the deadness of her womb and the extreme age of his own body, both those things were overcome. Why? Because with God, all things are possible. And we have to do the same thing. We have to look at the impossibilities of the circumstances around us and weigh that with, it's impossible for God to go back on his word. I don't care how dark and dreary and dead things begin to look, God cannot break his word. That's just as impossible, and we must trust in that. In fact, look at verse um, verse 12, going back to... Um, our passage in Hebrews. <clears throat> Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Boy, that is true. That is true. You think about the descendants of Abraham today. He's the father of the entire Jewish nation, but he's also the father of everyone who is, is Christ's as well. We are descendants of Abraham. In Galatians 3.29, it says, if you're a Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And that is the power of faith. That's the power of faith. Don't make the mistake of looking at the, the examples of these heroes of the faith and saying, well, that's a biblical hero of faith. That only happened in that time. God is working his power through your faith even today. And I hope some of you have marked those things in your life, that you've been able to look at that and say, boy, I saw God work in an amazing way. I've sh- I know I've shared it with you, but moving here was a hard thing to do because primarily I worried about screwing up my kids. I'll just be honest. Uh, Ethan was a teenager. All his friends were there. He didn't know anybody here. And I, my greatest fear was, well, God, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to have to trust him to you. And guess what? We moved here and everything was great. No, it wasn't. He struggled here. It was hard. He was depressed. He got eczema all over his body. He was stressed. He was, I felt like we, we killed him. You know, like, this, like, I don't know what to do. And, you know, God moved us back, didn't he? He moved us back. But then Ethan was able to see, okay, the grass isn't always greener. It, it wasn't what I thought. And then, and then we had to come back again. I said, well, if that didn't kill him, this is going to be it. I mean, now he's, he's definitely going to shipwreck his faith. And God did such a work in his, his life. I just had to trust it to God. I can look at that today and go, that was the power of faith. We had to trust him and look what God did. And on top of all that, the icing on the cake was that he would be here and meet his future wife. Like, it's almost like God said, and then I'll add this. You know, um, you all have the same things in your life. I know that you do. You can look back and go, wow, when I just trusted the Lord, look what he did. That's the power of faith. We're able to see the miraculous happen. That's a miracle. Most people say, I couldn't do that. I'll ruin my kids. I'll never move. I'll never go anywhere. Okay, then you'd have no trust in the Lord. Is God not stronger than those things? He's not greater than those things. He is. And we must trust him with those things. That's the power of faith. 
So let me get to this last section because it kind of brings it to conclusion. Okay, we're talking about these things of faith. We're on the path of faith. I've got to have patience of faith. And yeah, there's power of faith. But what about faith? Like, how do we know our faith is real? How do we know it's real? And this really brings us to these last few verses here, the proof of faith. The writer wants us to understand it. Look at verse 13, okay? Just summing it all up. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. The proof of faith. Now, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, none of them inherited the promised land. It was about 500 years after Jacob's death that Israel first began to possess the land, okay? It was not Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. They all died, we're told, in faith, never receiving what was promised. So you go, was their faith misplaced? Uh, Was their faith not real? I mean, how do we know they had faith? What's the proof that our faith is real? This closing section gives us three proofs of faith, and I just want to give these to you today. Questions that you can ask yourself or look at for yourself, okay? The first is this, three proofs of faith. You're certain of what you see. Now, it might sound opposite of how I open this, that the Christian faith is all about things we don't see, all about things we don't see. And even the definition of Hebrews, right, of faith in Hebrews, being sure of what we don't see, certain of what we don't see, Okay. Well, let me look at the verse, the word that's used here, but this word is used assured, having seen them afar off, the promises, they were assured of them. That word assured is pytho, means persuaded. It means we, we, we believe or have confidence in those things, okay? They saw those promises and they believed them. They were assured of them. We are promised things that are far off. Maybe they're not that far off, but they look and they seem afar off, don't they? I mean, sometimes it just seems so far off. We're promised a heaven, a heaven that we can't see. We're promised an eternity of, of, of uh, without pain, without sorrow that we've never experienced. And yet we can see these things just like Abraham and Sarah did, but we see them afar off. However long God takes to fulfill his promises, however long that is, he will fulfill it. For the believer, God's promise is as good as the reality. Does that make sense? Meaning we can see that. That's what they saw. They didn't see it in terms of inheriting it, Yes, they had seen it through the eyes of faith. The eyes of faith let us see it as real, as concrete. They're 100% assured that that is theirs. Isn't that a funny thing? We believe in things we can't see, and yet we can see them. That is the Christian faith. So the first proof is that your faith is real. It's the right, and on the right thing, you're certain of what you do see. You're certain of those promises. Do you believe the promises of God? Are you certain of them? The second proof of faith is you cling to what you've been promised. Look at what else they did. They embraced them. Not only were they assured of them, they embraced them. That word embraced is aspadzomai, and it means joyfully received. They they welcomed them. They embraced those uh, promises. That's how the patriarchs managed to live all those those years in that uh, land that was promised to them without ever possessing it because they possessed the promises. You possess the promises. I possess the promises. Those are ours. And we joyfully welcome them. We embrace them. We must cling to the promises of God. You may never possess anything else of value on this earth. You may be poor all your life. But if you possess that, you can have everything you ever need. Everything you ever need. I want want you to anchor yourself in biblical promises like 1 Peter 1. Take this one home and read it every day of the week this week. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. These are wonderful promises. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wow. Wow. I don't have time to unpack that. There's just too much there. But, but in short, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you too will have a resurrection. You too will inherit something that uh, is incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade away, and it's not kept by you. It's kept in heaven by God for you. Incredible. Incredible. 
Cling to those promises. Read scripture like that. The third proof is this. The third proof of faith is that you confess this world is not your home. And that's what they did in verse 13. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. How do we confess that? How do we make that known? Well, we live as if the world is not our home. If I were to ask uh, coworkers and friends of yours that aren't associated with the church about you, would they be able to say, oh yeah, oh yeah, I definitely know they're a Christian because of the way they live. I mean, it's, it's obvious that this world is not their, their home. Would I be able to have people say that about me if they were to ask uh, people who knew us? We are to live as if this world is not our permanent home. That's why we're given wonderful scriptures like in the King's speech, Matthew 5, right? Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In, in, in chapter 6, he gives us these wonderful words to live by, 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We probably had everything that could go wrong in the house go wrong this, this season. Don't know why. Our front door broke. The lock broke the day we were leaving for New Mexico. Tried to lock it, and it broke. So literally could have blown open by a gust of wind. But we were going on a plane. So I was like, well, <laughs> all right. We locked the inner door. I'm like, well, okay, gone it is. But we had to replace that when we got back. We had three, three tires go. We had a microwave go. We had, you know, we just had all these things going. Like, you start to go, I hope my treasure isn't in those things because those things, well, they, de- they destroy, they rust, or thieves break in and steal. And I was reading actually this passage this week. It was in my reading, Matthew 6 was. And I was contemplating it, what it says. It tells us this. It tells us the, lo- the location of our treasure reveals the location of our heart. That's what it tells us. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. But it also says the location of your heart then reveals who or what you truly love, doesn't it? Pretty, pretty profound. So do you truly cling to the promises of, of God? And then are you living that way? Do you confess that this world is not your home? Is that being seen? And that's what verse 14 says. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. The way you live your life can declare plainly to others that this is not your home. You're seeking something else. Does your life declare that? That's my simple question. Does it declare it even plainly? Remember um, last week, we looked at the one thing of Scripture, the one thing, and we looked at Psalm 27.4. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing. Sometimes we just got to come back to the one thing, and then you declare it plainly. I think it's difficult for us because the vast majority of people today just haven't made, honestly, if I can say it this way, sacrifices in pursuing the Lord. Can I say it that way? Many Christians do, if I'm honest, just sort of add God to their already organized and planned life. They're happy to have God along, but don't mess with what I've planned, right? I've got it, I've got it organized. But God comes in and, and reorders that. We, we give it to him, and it's now prioritized to him. And that is an important thing to remember and learn. You know, I was talking with Cambria. Uh, we were driving this week, and, um, you know, she's going to be going to, to university in the fall. So I was just talking to her hey, about how do you feel? You know, how do you feel about that? You know, again, you're leaving your home, and you're leaving friends. How do you feel about it? And she said, uh, she said no, I, I know it's going to be hard, but I also know it's from the Lord. I know it's right. And I was like, oh, so how do you know? It's just because I know it's a sacrifice to do it. Because it's hard, I know it's from the Lord because God wants us to make sacrifices and he's going to shape, shape us and teach us to that. And I went, shut up. That's a bunch of rubbish. You're staying here and that's all there is to it. I don't know where you're getting that nonsense. No more of that from your mouth. No, actually, I sat there going, oh, what? How do you, you need to teach me these things? But it's true. When we know we're, we're, we're making a difficult sacrifice for the Lord, the Lord's in that. He's blessing that because he wants to shape us. He wants to teach us. You know, that was not an easy thing for Abraham, was it? Oh, just get up and leave everything you know. The patriarchs, you know, if they wanted to, they could have gone back at any time. They could have gone back to the land that they started in. Uh, look at verse 15. And truly, if they had called to mind that country which they had come out of, they would have had opportunity to return. That's the point, though. Did they call it to mind? They didn't. 
Yeah, they called it to mind. They could have gone, oh, yeah, you know what? I remember what it was like back then. The Israelites did that when, when God brought them out of slavery in Egypt, when they were with Moses. They were lick, looking back going, oh, I remember the onions and the leeks and the garlic. And I was thinking, like, I remember, like, ooh, that's gross. But they were thinking back to all the things in captivity, looking back to their old lives. They didn't call it to mind. Our minds must be set on things above. Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things above, not on things on earth. If we're primarily earthly-minded and filled with earthly goals and dreams, then we're going to struggle in our faith. Faith must operate under the principles that we've just looked at. And when we do, we demonstrate that we're truly desiring something better. Let me close, look at verse 16. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I love it. A better country, a heavenly one. That's the theme of the whole book, isn't it? Jesus is better. That's the whole idea. All we've seen are these better things. He's, he's brought us to better things. He's given us a better hope that comes through a better covenant built on better promises because it comes through a better sacrifice. And now there's a better and enduring possession in heaven for us. It's the heavenly country. I love that. God is not ashamed of those that have this kind of faith, it says. He is for the people of real faith that God has prepared a heavenly city. So, don't be afraid to make sacrifices for God. Don't be afraid to jump out there in your faith because you give opportunity for his power to be displayed, which just, just reaffirms and encourages you. Abraham was a young in faith man coming out, but he just trusted God to do it. So just trust him. What has he laid on your heart this year? What has he told you to do? That might sound impossible. That might sound a bit crazy. If it's too crazy, come talk to me. But <laughs> But are you trusting the Lord with that? Let him show his power. It's the power of faith that is exhibited through truly entrusting in him. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for Abraham, the example of faith that we see through his life. And really, this is just the beginning. We'll begin to look at uh, even more examples of, of Abraham and his amazing, amazing faith. But really, it's just the start. Lord, we all start there on this path of faith. Or just learning to trust in you, even when we don't really know where we're going or what this is supposed to, uh, to look like. And yet you call us to patiently wait upon your promises. And Lord, exhibit faith that allows your power to be displayed. And Lord, I just pray that, Lord, we would live just like we've seen here at the end with a, a faith that is certain of what we've seen in the promises and cling to those things. Lord, may those things be the things we truly desire above all, above all things. And may our lives reflect that. May we be confessors of those truths that this world is temporary. I, I, I don't desire to lay up treasures here. I desire to lay them up in eternity for you, God. Please, Lord, just continue to strengthen our faith. We, we don't, we're not born with that, that faith. We must learn it. We must grow in it. Um, and it comes from you. So help us, Lord. We desire to honor you with our lives. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you uh, please stand and we'll sing a closing song together.